You're listening to STEM Essential, an Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council podcast. Hear from leading advocates and voices about why STEM education is crucial for our world today and tomorrow. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jeff Weld, Director of Iowa's STEM Council. STEM is Iowa's and the nation's edunomic development initiative, where education and economic development merge to improve lives and communities. The voices of leading edunomic developers are heard on this podcast, which is generously co-sponsored by Collins Aerospace and Mid-American Energy, proud partners of Iowa's STEM Council. Today's guest is State Senator Chris Knoyer, who is an ex-officio member of the Governor's STEM Advisory Council, and she's a perfect fit given her computer science degree from the University of Texas and decades of operating her own web design and development business. Chris's involvements are so numerous, I had to pick just a few favorites to cite. Cub Scout Den Leader, First Lego League Coach, Iowa Girls Code Mentor, Co-Founder of the Pleasant Valley High School Trap Shooting Team, and formerly (laughs) President of the Pleasant Valley Community School Board, past president of the Quad Cities Engineering and Science Council, mother of four, and in her spare time, as if, she's also a Scott County Sheriff's Reserve Deputy. (sighs) Thank you for making time to join us, Senator Knoyer. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's dive right in with a revelation. Tell our STEM community something that few would know about you that had a profound and maybe a subtle impact on your own STEM professional path or your current practices in STEM making you who you are? Sure. Well, I was born in 1970. And, um, you know, I like to look back and, and look at things that might have, uh, you know, made me the person that I, that I am today. Title IX is uh, something that passed in 1972. And we know that that had a profound effect on gender equity. Uh, my mother uh, is a t- was a teacher, and my dad uh, was a software engineer. He, his training is industrial engineering, but his whole professional life he spent in software development. And I grew up in the 80s with you know the development of PC Magazine and Microsoft and the kind of technology explosion in the 80s. And, and I had a father that really um, nurtured. Uh, he saw that technology was really the path to success, and uh, he was somebody that really nurtured that interest in me. I was kind of a math uh, you know, nerd, math person, but, you know, he got me interested. I had a PC junior at home. I had a dot matrix printer that I would print papers on, you know, in high school that would boggle everybody's mind. And I took a coding class, uh, a basic coding, uh, programming language class when I was 10 years old at the uh, local community college. And it was just something that really interested in me, uh, interested me. And, and, you know, it was something that I did with my dad. And of course, my mom being an educator, you know, really instilled that curiosity and lifelong learning gene in me. Um, in fact, so here's the revelation. In 1984, I did my eighth grade science fair project on artificial intelligence. And in 1984, not many people knew much about artificial intelligence. So I got an A on the project. But 
Um, you know, fast forward a few years, last year in the Iowa Senate, I ran a bill, uh, the autonomous vehicle bill, um, that did deal quite a bit with artificial intelligence and what that technology is going to look like. So um, I called my father up and I said, you're never going to guess what we're doing in the Iowa Senate. And, you know, for that to be something that I did growing up, you know, you never know when you're going to use something. You know, sometimes when you're learning things in school, you say, when am I ever going to use this? Well, guess what? Artificial intelligence was a thing back in the 80s, and, and it's, a, it's a big thing that everybody's talking about now. So that's come full circle. Bravo, parrots. I have to believe mm. that was on some kind of an Apple IIe with floppy disk, maybe? <laughs> oh, there were floppy disks. Yeah, there was a, a phone call <laughs> modem. And, you know, and, and so, you know, I, I, and I also had a high school that um, offered Pascal programming classes. So, um, and I had a, a, you know, the teacher that I had in high school was someone who had uh, industry experience who could really show us, you know, the relevant real world applications of what we were doing in the classroom. So, um, you know, I went on to the University of Texas, got my degree in computer science. There weren't a whole lot of girls in my class. Um, went on to work for Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture. Um, you know, got to travel and do a lot of really interesting things with that. Um, then when I got married and had my first child, I was able to use that computer science background and that technology background to stay home and start my own website design business and be home for my kids. And, you know, I can really work anywhere. I have a laptop and an internet connection. So it's given me a lot of flexibility in my life. Uh, you mentioned something that I want to drill into. I know for all of our listeners, it's an intrigue to meet anomalies in the STEM community. And you, are, you represent an anomaly. You're a female in the computer science industry. In the 90s, I'm going to guess we were lucky if 10%, one out of 10 computer science majors at UT was a woman. If, and I'm guessing, I wouldn't mind if you would explain a little bit of what that was like and uh, what powered you when you looked around a room and realized there weren't a lot of women here. And how did you persist and thrive and counter the, the, the biases that might have uh, swirled around you? And what kind of lessons for young women in computers do you have to impart as a result of that experience? Well, I'll say this. I had very supportive parents who told me that I could do anything a boy could do. And if it was something that I wanted to do, go for it. Um, so that was part of it. Um, you know, and it was, it was sometimes frustrating to look around and not see a lot of people that looked like me in the classroom. But, you know, I, I also had professors that uh, were very supportive. I had some that weren't supportive, um, which challenged me. Um, I played four sports in high school. So I think that I have a bit of a competitive a competitiveness to me where I wanted to prove to everybody around me that I deserved to be there and I um, had just as much to offer um, as everyone else. So um, I think that had something to do with it. But I really think that my parents um, raised me to, to know that I could do anything that anybody else could do. And and, you know, for those women and, and the professors, you know, I remember when Carly Fiorina became the CEO of HP, um, you know, that was a real glass ceiling breaker. And she was a real inspiration to people like me. So we were starting to see that in the 90s. We were, you know, just in Anderson Consulting, we, we saw more female partners coming up through the ranks. And, um, you know, I think that that really inspired me, not only for the women that reached out and mentored me through that time, it's really inspired me to reach out and continue to widen the path um, for the girls that are uh, going into STEM, you know, uh, behind me. So I, I feel a real, uh, you know, pay it forward um, uh, intention there um, that I want to continue to push forward, to pay forward. No doubt. 
So your competitive nature has come through in terms of politics. Have you ever lost an election? Not yet. <laughs> All right, knock on wood. <laughs> Undefeated. Knock on wood, exactly. At the yeah, ballot I, box. I ran for school board twice, um, once with an opponent and once unopposed, and then I ran for the Iowa State Senate. So, so far, so good. Excellent. And that leads to our second question. The topic that you're representing on these series of podcasts is legislating STEM. So I think question one along these lines is simply for our listeners, why should they care? Why is this a topic that impacts them? The legislating of STEM, why should it matter to listeners? Well, I think, you know, the economic development, um, you know, a strong economy um, allows us to fund priorities. And those priorities, you know, are education, public safety, mental health. I mean, the, the life, the list goes on. Um, and we can't have a strong, thriving economy without a talented workforce, a skilled, educated, talented workforce. So it is really critical, um, especially with the retirement of our baby boomer generation, to make sure that we are training our next generation of STEM professionals to take those jobs um, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, we, we can not only uh, provide those opportunities here in Iowa to keep kids in our state after they uh, finish their education and training, but also to be able to attract people to our state workforce, you know, with, you know, prior to the virus. Um, you know, we were looking at record low unemployment and we had more jobs than people in our state. So um, attracting a talent, a skilled, educated workforce um, is, you know, keeping them here in the state and attracting them from elsewhere. It was really critical. So uh, it matters in terms of growing our economy, having a strong economy and making Iowa a great place to live, work and, and raise a family. Great. It's so nice to have a strong STEM advocate. Uh, <laughs> in the policy-making body at the state capitol. Thank so, you. Chris, let's, the, the theme of the podcast is current conditions and future outlooks. So let's split that apart into current and then future. How would you assess the current landscape of STEM education in your community, in our state, across the nation? However you want to frame it, uh, what, what's the current status? How are we doing? Well, I think Iowa is a leader truly in the nation in terms of STEM education. Um, you know, with the development of the Iowa Governor STEM Council and the leadership of Governor Reynolds, we have really created a STEM ecosystem in Iowa that supports and integrates learning opportunities across sectors that will help fuel a diverse talent pipeline that our workforce desperately needs. Um, the STEM Council has delivered resources and programming to enable schools and organizations to really provide high quality project-based learning as young as preschool so kids are comfortable building those skills like collaboration and creative problem solving and resiliency and communication that are so critical for today's workforce and global economy. Um, and to take it forward, the STEM Council's supported initiatives such as Future Ready Iowa that encourages all students to get additional training or education beyond high school. Um, and it's important that that's not just focused on getting a four-year college degree. It can be a two-year degree, an apprenticeship, military, or going directly into the workforce, but making sure that we are creating lifelong learners and recognizing that you can't just, you know, your education and training doesn't stop when you graduate from high school. It really has to be a lifelong um, endeavor. Um, so um, the STEM Council, in addition, has been really proactive in terms of facilitating public-private partnerships 
where business and education are really working together to provide those meaningful experiences, um, getting teachers out into the business community and with externships so that they can see what's going on in those local businesses and take what they learn back to the classroom to really make those real world connections for students. Um, creating job shadows and internships and having job fairs and STEM festivals for students to really understand what types of careers are out there in their communities and what kind of training and education they need to get while they're still getting their K-12 through education so they're prepared to go into those um, careers after they graduate from high school. So I think, you know, career readiness and really digging into, you know, kids, getting them started on what do you want to do when you grow up? at an early age so that they are ready to roll and can start, you know, taking those uh, community college classes while they're still in high school um, and be ready to roll right after they graduate. Mm -hmm. So you paint a sort of all hands on deck sense of urgency around STEM education for, for economic vitality, for uh, life, fulfilling lives, opportunities. Uh, are there any hands not on deck? Are there any partners or stakeholders that need to get in the game who aren't? Oh, I think that we'd have to continue to drive that STEM is everywhere. That STEM is everywhere you look in our lives and it can be found virtually in every discipline and in every product that you use. And, and really, I, you know, it's not just exclusive to science, technology, engineering, and math. It really is, you know, the ability to take technology and skills uh, with creativity to lead to innovative ideas that really enhances everything that uh, we encounter in our lives from art to agriculture, from music to business and, and beyond. It really touches every aspect of our lives. Interesting. You bring up the arts. I'm going to throw you a curveball question having to do with the arts. You know, the STEM Council is not the STEAM Council. What are your thoughts on STEM and STEAM, a big conversation nationally? It is a big, con uh, a big conversation. And I think that people, you know, I hate to say it, it's on both sides because we're all here to really enhance um, engagement for students and, and enhance the, the collaborativeness of it all. I, I really think that, um, you know, STEM enhances everything that we do and it, um, you know, really brings together that collaboration and that creative problem solving. You know, when I see, you know, when I was on the school board of Pleasant Valley, you know, nothing was more exciting than going down to the industrial tech lab where the, the students were taking a welding class and seeing them working with the art students to come up with real, something really creative or, or working with those interior design students to come up with something really interesting and innovative. So, you know, making sure that, you know, these are not classrooms that where you go down this hall to do math and you go down this hall to take an art class. They're, they're really all very interdisciplinary and they all really need to work together to really bring ideas to life and really um, take um, innovation and creativity to the next level. Yeah, yeah. So the, the ideal state of STEM is an interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, big picture, uh, merged and blurred disciplinary pursuit. That's a, that's a wonderful vision. And I'm going to take that to uh, a futuristic level now. Get out your crystal ball and look 10 years ahead. Look 30 years ahead when your kids are, are, are parents and you're a grandma. And what's STEM education going to look like 10 to 30 years from now? Or what should it look like? I think that we need to continue to be agile. I mean, just like today, we have jobs that exist today that didn't exist five or 10 years ago. We're going to have jobs in 10, 20, 30 years from now that don't exist today. So we need to continue to be agile, continue to focus on those business education partnerships, 
um, you know, focus on uh, sustainability and, you know, how we're creating energy, um, you know, as a continue to be a priority so that we have a sustainable environment. Um, how we deliver education must continue to, to remain um, agile so we can continually evolve and adapt to the ever-changing, you know, global knowledge-based economy. Students aren't just competing with their classmates. They're competing with students from around the globe for jobs. And we just, we need to make sure that we are continually evolving our technology and, and be very aware of how we adapt to change um, to continue to be competitive. Um, and, you know, while we're doing all that, we need to make sure that we're protecting our data, um, protecting the privacy and rights of our citizens um, because of all this emerging technology that is happening very quickly. I mentioned artificial intelligence um, you know, earlier, you know, that's something that not many people heard of in the 80s. But, you know, all you hear about is AI and, and how it's going to impact our lives and what we're going to do with this massive amount of data that we're collecting every day on our, our citizens and how we're keeping our citizens' data safe and protected is going to be, um, continue to be a huge uh, priority and something that we really need to pay attention to. Isn't that the truth? Agility <laughs> moving forward uh, on so many levels. I mean, here we are in the midst of a pandemic and talking about a necessity for agility in how we deliver services. Related to the pandemic, I, I'd invite you to consider some of the threats that are out there between where we are now in STEM education and that vision you've just put out there about a, a future that's constantly evolving and adaptive and, and competitive globally. So if you could pick maybe three threats that you see looming out there between the current state and that future you envision, what would they be? I think stagnation is certainly one of them. Um, you know, being satisfied with the status quo is not a way that we're going to um, stay competitive as a state. Um, and, you know, always staying ahead of threats. I mean, we, you know, we were looking at legislation this year that addressed ransomware um, because we're seeing that as something that is affecting, you know, school districts, cities and counties and states across the nation. Um, making sure that we are staying ahead of, um, you know, continuing to adapt and, and not being afraid to uh, try new things, um, you know, within some boundaries. We can't be afraid to fail. Um, but we also have to make sure that whatever we're doing, um, we can ensure that level of trust with our citizens in terms of how we're protecting their data. But, you know, we have to encourage entrepreneurship. We have to nurture and, and try new ideas. Don't be afraid to fail. Try new things. But, you know, th there's a lot of um, emerging technologies. And, and uh, I've been to a couple of conferences in the last year regarding technologies. You know, on one hand, we've got, you know, disruptive technology that changes on a daily basis. And on one hand, and then on the other hand, we've got what I call the glacial pace of government. Um, you know, so what are we doing um, in terms of developing policy that um, protects our citizens, but also doesn't stifle innovation and creativity from our technology leaders? Um, so, you know, not being afraid of that technology, but really trying to, um, you know, put some some balance that, you know, safety and privacy of our citizens with, um, you know, technology that can really enhance people's lives and, and allow us to continue to grow our economy and be competitive as a state. Such a balancing act. And uh, we're, we're all grateful that you're heading back to the Capitol uh, in a couple of weeks to do the people's business of lawmaking, walking yep. that fine balance. Yeah. As, as, a, as a mother, you mentioned uh, your, your own kids doing homework as a former robotics coach. 
as a school board member, you, you lived it and maybe even today can observe the effect of the pandemic on robotics teams and schools and uh, the educational environment. Some people say that we'll likely emerge from this better in some ways than we were pre-COVID. Do you share mm -hmm. that? And if so, how do you see us being better than we were? Well, I think with this virus, it certainly made us like in a very short amount of time have to look at how we can continue to conduct business and continue to con connect with our families and friends through this through this time. Um, you know, we've seen um, people still conducting business using, um, you know, Zoom meetings, Google Hangouts, Microsoft Teams, you know, to continue to conduct business for um, organizations and also corporations, but just to connect with friends and stay connected with family during this time when you can't necessarily be in person. Um, we've seen an increase in online shopping, um, how people buy goods, how they buy groceries. They might be going online and purchasing their groceries and then going and picking them up. Um, we've seen, obviously, uh, how we're delivering continuous education and the challenges that some school districts in our state have had, um, you know, with regard to access. Um, you know, not we don't have equitable broadband um, that is reliable across the state. That is something that we are going to have to continue to um, make sure that we uh, address. Um, there's been an uptick in the use of telehealth, um, which I think that is good going to be something that we're going to have to continue to make sure that we have resources to. But, you know, and it's not just access to broadband, but we need to make sure that it's adequate bandwidth that allows parents to work from home while their student, while their children are also doing online learning. Um, that's a common, um, common concern that we've had from parents. You know, I'm trying to work here or I'm trying to have an online meeting and my kids are live streaming upstairs with their teacher and there's just not simply enough bandwidth. So I think that in terms of that, in terms of how we're going to deliver education in the future, not just with the virus, but, you know, last year we had um, a lot of missed school days due to weather. So how can we deliver a high quality education for all learners um, in a manner that uh, is equitable to all students across the state. Um, that's gonna, that, I think that that's going to be brought into the forefront. Um, a, a bill that I ran actually last year for uh, electronic notarization was something that was not supposed to go into effect until July 1st of 2020. Well, during one of the um, emergency uh, uh, declarations that Governor Reynolds put forth, she went ahead and enacted it immediately so that uh, mortgage lenders, bankers, and, and uh, credit unions could continue to conduct business in that way. So, you know, that was something that it was legislation that we did last year, seeing that that was something that um, was going to be necessary in the future. And, and I'm really glad that we had it teed up because it really came in handy this year for a lot of um, electronic notarization and, and the continuation of that business so it wasn't disrupted during this time. That's a perfect example of some of the fast-tracked innovations that have been enabled because of the pandemic, the forced uh, serendipitous evolution of educational delivery services such as um, digital platforms and virtual learning. Uh, we've been pushing for, for years at a snail crawl, and here now it's exploded imperfect mm -hmm. as it is to be widespread. Moving forward, yeah. and, and in your area of expertise, AI and and I'll throw quantum in there as a real front edge uh, quantum computing revolution. Some people have compared quantum computing to 
uh, Enrico Fermi splitting the atom underneath the bleachers of uh, Chicago Stadium. Such a scientific advancement with both good and ill potential to it. Would you mind commenting on how artificial intelligence, already shaping how people teach in personalized learning, and quantum computing, likely to revolutionize speed and, and transfer of information, have both promise and have some uh, cloud if we're not careful? Yes, exactly. So, you know, we collect massive amounts of data every day um, on our citizens and how we use that data for good. You know, we need to look at the ethics of, of how that's developed in terms of, you know, the artificial intelligence that's being used to be able to sift through all that data to make intelligent decisions um, based on past uh, outcomes. Um, and I can't tell you how excited this makes me that I'm talking about artificial intelligence right now. But, um, you know, what we're doing with this massive amount of data and, you know, the outbreak of the COVID-19 virus saw the necessity to share massive amounts of critical information very quickly. You know, the governor's office set up a website to deliver information for business assistant, unemployment, guidance for education, you know, Department of Health on how to stay healthy. Um, and a dashboard was created that showed real-time data on the virus-related cases, recoveries, tested. But, you know, how can we sift through all this massive amount of data that we're getting every single day to be able to make intelligent decisions that will be the right thing for our citizens um, to keep them healthy? And then how can we use this massive amount of data that we're collecting to avoid a future pandemic um, and to do things in a very preventative way or proactive way um, so that we're not going through this again in another year or any time in the future. So, um, you know, there is a way to use it for good and, you know, making sure that we are doing it in a, in a very thoughtful, reasonable way so that, um, you know, we don't lose trust of the public um, so that they think that we're, you know, getting into their daily lives. But, you know, making sure that we're taking into account civil liberties and privacy of our citizens, I think, is going to be really important. Um, you know, there's been a there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, facial recognition and other biometric um, technologies. And, and uh, you know, are we using that for law enforcement? Are we using that for public safety? Um, and what is being done with that data after we collect it? Um, you know, just a, a lot of information like that needs to be um, handled very delicately and very um, safely, you know, in terms of using the cloud, who has access to it and and where it's being stored, I think is going to be the, all things that we have to continue to address and be very proactive because, um, you know, with the ransomware outbreaks too, you know, we don't want um, our data or, you know, even the integrity of our elections um, to be compromised when, um, you know, we want to be able to maintain the trust of our citizens and our general public. It is a brave new world, Chris. It is. You know, when you think about the burgeoning careers, I think you led off with the uh, opportunities that are, are um, really expanding in the IT sector, cybersecurity and coding, obviously, and artificial intelligence and quantum and data analytics, as you were just talking about. Are we are we sufficiently inspiring a sufficient number of young Iowans to consider these careers? And if not, what should we be doing more of? Well, I, I think that we're doing a great job. Um, there's always more to be done. But I think, you know, really getting that with the Future Ready Iowa initiative and what, the, uh, you know, in terms of career counseling and, and really um, getting into elementary schools and junior high schools and really um, 
giving, showing all those options on what kind of careers exist and what kind of skills you need to be able to have a good, you know, family supporting job when you get older. That might not be important to a 13 year old. I have 13 year old twins, but you know, it will be important at some point in their lives. But um, in terms of continuing to get them out into the field, um, going out into businesses and into the community, we've got some really good programs here in Iowa, the Iowa Big Program, um, you know, and there, there's other uh, variations of that program around the state where students are working in the community with their local government and with businesses to really do hands-on real-world um, projects uh, that really allow them to go back into the classroom and, and really understand the relevancy of why they're learning what they're learning. I, I, I can remember several examples when I was in school, you know, you're taking this class and you're like, when am I ever going to use this in the real world? Well, these project-based learning opportunities that we're um, rolling out, I think are really the best way to do that. And I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people don't want just jobs now. They want to be able to make a difference and, um, you know, make the world a better place. And so I think there's something very altruistic about, you know, not just having a job, but what am I doing to make the world a better place? How am I helping people live more active lives? How am I allowing us to, you know, take care of our environment and create sustainable energy and, and really do things where I see a, that I'm making an individual impact in my community? So, um, I think it's, you know, starting them at young age with these pre-K programs and these STEM opportunities where kids are getting hands-on, they're getting um, comfortable with these technologies, they're working together in teams and collaborated um, settings. And, um, you know, it's not just a teacher standing up at the uh, front of a classroom, it's a teacher really facilitating um, hands-on learning that, um, you know, inspires creativity and problem solving and really, you know, lights that curiosity in the students to make them want to go out and learn more. And that creates those lifelong learning, lifelong learners that we're really going to need in our workforce to continually evolve and, and continually be competitive in the global um, knowledge-based economy. Absolutely. Connecting the world of education to the world of work that awaits. I don't know mm -hmm. who loses by more of that. Exactly. Chris, I love your optimism, your positive outlook for the future. I'm sure our listeners and your family and everybody in your midst does. So share with us something you've done lately or that you heard or that you read or maybe something that you realized that inspired you about the future of STEM education in Iowa and, and STEM education across the country for that matter. Well, I think this with the outbreak of this virus, I think that we've seen the necessity of of technology and how important it is to be able to, you know, maintain, um, you know, the, our health and, and safety, but also to continue our economy. Um, you know, we've been able to allow people to work from home. We've been able to continue education at some level, um, you know, and the fact that we've been able to roll all this out in, you know, what, a two-month period has been really phenomenal. And we wouldn't have been able to do this stuff without technology. Um, you know, just the dashboard that the governor's using to get real-time data out to, to people so that they can drill down to the county level to get information on what's going on in their local community. Um, I think that there is going to be a real, uh, you know, there was already a focus on um, expanding our broadband infrastructure, but I think there's going to be a real continued emphasis on really how important that is so that we can deliver not only continue people working from home, uh, delivering business solutions, but also how it impacts uh, education, mental health, telehealth, 
um, appointments and, and how it's really, you know, and then, and just, you know, the Zoom meetings where people can just see their families. And, you know, I, I had a friend or a neighbor actually who just had a grandchild and she hasn't been able to see the grandchild in person, but she's been able to have, you know, online meetings where they can interact and at least she can see them where that wouldn't have been, in, you know, possible 10 years ago. So I'm very inspired that, you know, people such as, you know, my neighbor who really wasn't comfortable, didn't know what Zoom was um, two months ago, you know, really embracing, you know, clicking on, you know, that Zoom meeting, clicking on it and being able to see her grandchild for the first time. So I think this is maybe... Um, created a, a whole new uh, demographic of people that maybe were afraid of technology before that are using it to um, enrich their lives. And, and I'm very optimistic on, on what that looks like uh, moving forward. That was a wonderful note to end on. Iowa State Senator Chris Knoyer, thank you for sharing your compelling vision of STEM with Iowans and our partners across the country. Thank you, Jeff. It's an honor to, to be here. And thank you for what you do for Iowa STEM um, and the Iowa STEM Council. It is an honor. Thank you. This has been episode five of STEM Essential, a podcast series featuring the voices of edunomic innovators brought to you by the Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council. Thank you for listening. Today's and all STEM Essential podcasts are available at iowastem.gov forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to STEM Essential. This podcast is generously co-sponsored by Collins Aerospace and Mid-American Energy, proud partners of Iowa STEM Council. To learn more and find resources, please visit iowastem.gov.